0: Good evening. This is Cinema 60.
1: I don't understand. Anything. I mean, hiding from you don't know who? For a crime you're not even sure you've committed? And the only thing I know I'm guilty. Of what? You sure, you don't want to drink. Of what are you guilty?
2: not being Innocent. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. I feel like it's been a while.
0: Yeah, it's a brand new year.
2: Yeah, so much has changed since the last time we've talked.
0: And yet we're still in the same rooms.
2: You know, this, this vacation we took means that we're going to be super prepared for this episode and we'll have a lot of really interesting things to say. Although the subject of this particular episode, jazz anxiety... I really didn't know what the hell you meant by that. (laughs) I I went into this episode really not knowing what it was about. Watched the movies, thought about it a little bit, and kind of decided for myself what I thought this episode's subject was about. But what did you have in mind when you said, hey, Bart, let's do a Jazz Anxiety episode?
0: I pretty much had in mind that I wanted to watch a handful of movies that I have already seen and really enjoy. (laughs) And the thing that they all have in common is having a jazz soundtrack by notable artists and slash or are just about really anxious situations or characters. But what makes them in my mind, jazz anxiety movies is that what they sort of do, all of these films that we chose is that they use the music. Like, these movies would be nothing without their jazz soundtracks. And visually, what you get on the screen is seems to be inspired directly by the soundtrack and not vice versa. Now, most of these movies were probably shot and edited before the soundtrack was even written. And yet, there's something just kind of abstract about these. All of these movies have these sort of hints of... I don't know, visual jazz, like this sort of maybe a little bit surreal, maybe a little abstract, definitely heavy on the frenetic energy and the anxiety. And uh, it's a thing. Like, I don't know. In my head, it's a thing. Though I have to say rewatching <laughs> a lot of these, they weren't nearly as anxious as I remembered them to be.
2: Well, there certainly had a lot of mental illness in all of these movies got a a large collection of really mentally unstable characters here
0: that's jazz baby that's art in general
2: (laughs) (laughs) so let's jump right in with probably the jazziest of all of these jazz movies the connection 1961 directed by shirley clark based on a stage play by Jack Gelber, and uh, I don't know, is it the world's first mockumentary?
0: It sort of is, right? It starts off with that bizarre disclaimer about how the director was never heard from ever again.
2: You never think you're watching an actual documentary, but it puts in lots of touches that suggest that it's an actual documentary. You you know, you've got characters talking to the camera or uh, talking to the guy, JJ, who's actually filming basically the idea is that this director, Jim Dunn, has decided to make a documentary about uh, some junkies who are in an apartment waiting for their connection to show up. Four of them, well, at least four of them, but four of them are jazz musicians. So we get uh, them practicing in this apartment uh, the whole time. And uh, the rest of them are just losers, for lack of a better term. For as much as this movie is trying to humanize junkies, it also has a real anti-drug message and, and you're supposed to be shocked by how these people have destroyed their lives because of their heroin addiction. So yeah, that's what this fictional director, Jim Dunn, is trying to capture the lives of these people who are just, uh, you know live from, from one fix to the next. They're in the apartment of uh, this guy named Leach who's the most unpleasant character in here. He kind of reminds me of, uh, like, a, you know, he's Weasley like Steve Buscemi, but he kind of looks like Richard Widmark a little bit. <laughs> and he's got this disgusting boil on his neck that it is causing him a lot of pain the whole time, and, and at one point we uh, we have a scene of all the other people in the apartment squeezing his boil for him. The movie's sort of lurid, sort of lingers on unpleasant detail. Also had some serious censorship issues. There's language and drug use and nudie mags and, and you know, all sorts of things that definitely weren't a part of what Hollywood was putting out in nineteen sixty one. And uh, after some retrials, the this it finally got passed for release in New York City anyway, and it sort of did its part to break down censorship rules a bit. What did you think of this movie?
0: This movie rocks. <laughs> 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 like, you're going on about how everyone's a loser, but this movie is so. This is like, this movie is jazz, baby. This movie's cool, though. It, it's really like weird. You know, it's this really experimental fourth wall breaking stream of consciousness, confessional, druggy film in 1961. This is cool, man. I don't know what you're talking about.
2: It's cool that it exists. But it's pretty uncomfortable to watch, both because of the subject matter and some of the poor acting, I guess. Or it's not even poor acting. It's just really clearly based on a stage play. So a lot of the dialogue just comes off as stagey when it should be sounding natural. That was my main problem with the movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is. It's definitely stagey. You're in one room for the entire film. But. I don't know the way that things happen and, you know, the way that it starts off with this documentary and eventually they sort of turn to the camera and start talking. And it is clear how and where everything was a play. It's very, very clear from the dialogue to how information is presented. But like, there's so much weird stuff that happens with the camera and it's so slow, this movie, but not in a bad way. And like this weird way that kind of lulls you into this, bizarre drug world of (laughs) heroin and and music and and what I also I mean you know the camera there'll be like a character sitting there on a couch riffing on whatever the heck you know drugs or whatever addiction (laughs) and suddenly the camera's gaze just kind of loses interest in the guy that they're talking to and, and drifts upward and suddenly it's following like a cockroach that's just like climbing on the <laughs> bricks and stuff. I mean, I love these weird little touches. You know, I was saying earlier that all of these movies have these sort of abstract pops of bizarreness in them, but this one is different on in two ways, which is that the music is the non-anxiety part of this whole movie. The music is like this sort of welcome break. Everyone's like jonesing everyone's waiting around for their fix quite literally they can't handle being in the same room as each other but the second that they step away and start playing it's like this really calm cool music that allows them to have a break for once and then there's no real abstract surrealism that's done in film but the fact that it's just this whole movie feels so weird the fact that it feels like a stage play but it's shot like a documentary And it uses all of these sort of non-actors. It uses a lot of real musicians. It just has this whole vibe that it's so weird to, I can't even, I don't know how to describe it, but it sucks you in and it gets you into this weird place where even though the dialogue is stagey and the characters are sort of caricature-esque, the vibe feels real. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely gets under your skin. It succeeds on that level for sure. And that's a really good point. About the jazz, Freddie Red is the composer of the music, and he's uh, he's in the movie playing piano, and he's got it's a quartet, and the the four of them don't have much dialogue in the movie. They they you know they'll occasionally get a line or two. It's mostly the non jazz musicians who we're hearing from the whole time.
0: So one of the things I did for this episode, which I probably should have mentioned at the beginning, <laughs> but we have a bit of a, a ghost in the room for this whole episode, which is that I reached out to kyle eagle who you might remember from a previous cinema 60 episode on sweet love bitter kyle has a jazz podcast and he is a jazz historian quite frankly this he's one of these guys where you can say anyone and he has like some factoid about the dude (laughs) so i was like let me let me like run all of these movies past him and see if he has anything to say about them So one of the things that he thought was interesting about The Connection, which was a movie that he said he didn't love, but whatever, we're not talking about his opinions. He said that the sax player in this movie is Jackie McLean, who he thought was the most interesting part of this, who has the most interesting sound of of all of the guys in this otherwise kind of small-time band, Freddie Reddy. He didn't really have too much to say but Jackie McLean apparently was kind of this hard street kid that grew up to be a really unique player with, he said, a searing melodic tone. He was actually busted for dope early on and lost his cabaret license. And he managed to get his act together and, and record prolifically because, you know, he couldn't show up and perform in person. So he has a ton of records. He was in Miles Davis's group for a bit. So he seems like the most interesting musically of everybody that, that we see in this film. He also suspected, though, you know, who knows, that, that probably the rest of this band was kind of part of the druggy scene in real life anyhow, <laughs> uh, which is might have been part of that choice. But, you know, who knows?
2: They're clearly real musicians, and they were chosen for their m- musical skills because they aren't really given much dialogue at all. I mean, they're there. I mean, probably, you know, Freddie Red. I don't know anything about him. I'd, I'd heard the name and, and that's about it. And I'm just assuming that they're the group that he put together and he just happened to have a, a sax player in his group that had a little, a little special something.
0: Sure, but I mean, who's, who wants to show up in a, in a drug movie unless you're cool with it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's true. I don't know my jazz genres, really. but I, I mean, this is kind of a, a, a bebop or hard bop.
0: It, this is a hard bop soundtrack is, is my understanding of it. And, and in general, I mean, this is 1960, probably when this was recorded, but you know, 61. And, you know, at this point, this is pretty innovative stuff for the early 60s. I mean, you're, you're coming off of um, the 50s, which of course was a, also a, a big time for jazz being trendy, at least. And, uh, you know, at this point, not only were people interested in jazz, but I think they were also pretty intrigued by the whole druggy scene. I mean, Chet Baker would be in jail by now and Charlie Parker was dying. And, you know, this. I think that was a bit of the appeal, quite frankly, is having something that was, it was edgy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So besides the music being edgy, you know, the drug use is edgy and it's, it's an interesting movie. I think you, should, anyone should give it a try if they have any vague interest in it.
2: Well, Shirley Clark has sort of risen in people's estimation lately. A lot of her movies have been remastered and re-released. Portrait of Jason. We've done Cool World on this show, which unfortunately is one that has not been remastered. Looked like crap when we watched it. She was in that, one of the Ani Varda movies we watched, Lion's Love. So she's, um, you know, I, I think most people will either come to this movie because they know the soundtrack they like Freddie Red, or they're interested in Shirley Clark. It's definitely innovative. It's experimental in a really watchable way. Definitely worth a watch. It just doesn't quite succeed as well as I would want it to. Maybe it's maybe I'm jaded from so many other people mastering the mockumentary form since this movie, but it does seem a little rudimentary in certain ways. But, it, it I mean, it also has some fun effects like it'll throw in the exposed ends of the film and do a lot of cool looking stuff just to sort of get across that oh this is an actual film being made thing
0: well you get some close-ups of needles and arms which was a little bit creepy
2: yeah I mean when cowboy shows up he's the connection with sister salvation who's uh, I don't know she's trying to save people's souls but he sort of drags her around with him just because he kind of thinks it's funny or something. And she's kind of oblivious to what's going on in this apartment. And I think that's sort of the point. They're trying to get across that, you know, mainstream society doesn't even know that these people exist, that this is a world that is being exposed for the first time. You know, Nobody's seen it before. And, and Sister Salvation is there just, you know, to be oblivious, like the status quo uh, and, and she doesn't even know like you'd think that she would be trying to, to save the souls of these junkies but she just doesn't even like so a lot of all of the drug use when, when cowboy comes he takes each of these people into the bathroom one by one and they get their fix there so you don't see it and you think oh you know they're not going to show us the needle in the arm at all in this movie but then finally one of the climactic moments where uh, where leech is uh, he gets high so often that the fix that Cowboy gave him doesn't have much of an effect, so he insists that Cowboy give him another, and that's when you finally, Cowboy says, okay, here you go, but I'm not doing it. You, you have to do it yourself, and that's when you see like the full needle-in-the-arm bit, and it's pretty graphic.
0: Yeah, and he basically like has an orgasm <laughs> from, from getting <laughs> his fix. I mean, this is... It...
2: A fatal orgasm. Or near fatal orgasm. This
0: movie's a lot more unsettling than it lets on, I think. There's something about it. Like, the more you think about it, and especially the ending. I mean, the ending is just, like, (laughs) everyone's just sort of, like, you know, they think maybe they killed their friend and they all just leave. (laughs) They're like, oh, I gotta gotta go do a thing. Bye. You know, it's like. It's terrible. And, you know, you can kind of, I I don't know if maybe like the staginess of it can sort of make this almost a funny movie because it is stagey. but like, I don't know, I found it sort of disturbing in like a good way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I thought the most unconvincing part was the director and his character arc, them trying like hell to make us convinced that his experience here has uh, sort of destroyed his entire life. And that's why he couldn't finish this film, as the disclaimer disclaims at the beginning of the film. The staginess, I think, is kind of what makes it less uncomfortable for me. It's the jazz breaks where you sort of get to chill out for a little bit and the staginess where you can't help but feel like this is a bit more fake than it should be. It kept me from getting uh, you know too bummed out by it.
0: I feel like this movie is less about trying to shock you than it. I mean, it is a bit of shock. You know, it's again, it's it's drug use, but it's really kind of more about the banality of that anxiety and terror. It's like everything's so casual in this movie and it's disturbing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but this is also sort of the reality of these types of situations where if you're all just hanging out in like a heroin den. You're just waiting around to get your fix and maybe die. And, you know, hopefully you have that moment of ecstasy before it all happens. And it's not going to scare you or anything. It's not going to make you cry. <laughs> it's not an emotional film. It's It really almost kind of floats on the same banality of filmmaking. It's otherworldly and in a very strangely not way. I don't know how to say it. <laughs>
2: I mean, it definitely would have shocked audiences at the time, I'm sure. Anyone who was brave enough to actually go see this film must have been pretty horrified by what they saw on screen. It's lost some of its edge in the last 60 years, but it's still effective and worth watching.
0: Well, the next movie is All Night Long. which is 1962, directed by Basil Dearden. This is a British movie.
2: All the musicians are American. Well, I guess you've got some British musicians in this, but the recognizable musicians in this, uh, Dave Brubeck and Charles Mingus, definitely American. It's fun to see them in here just doing their thing.
0: Probably most people that are watching all night long are watching it strictly because they want to see Brubeck and Mingus, who, you know, in 1961 were certainly at the height of their power. Brubeck was involved with Paul Desmond. He was doing his third stream style, which is sort of somewhere in between the classical world and the jazz world. And uh, Mingus was, he was definitely on the rise, uh, if not pretty much had made it at this point. And I think what's sort of amusing about this movie was that Mingus was known for being this like really volatile dude, (laughs) like really abusive person. Who, as Kyle told me, apparently there was uh, one of his band members, Jimmy Nepper. Mingus like punched him in the face repeatedly and broke his jaw to the point where apparently Nepper put out a contract, like a hit contract on him, which only (laughs) came out later uh, after Mingus died. And he was apparently confronted by Mingus's wife, who was like, Really? Why did you do that? And he was like, Dude, he broke my jaw. Like, he couldn't play afterward. And apparently Mingus was the type of dude that would, you know, slam the piano cover down in your hands. And, you know, actually watching um, Pretend It's a City, the Scorsese series that's that's on Netflix that everyone's crazy about now. Fran Lebowitz, she has a, a, I think in the second episode, she has a whole story about how she was friends with Mingus. But one of the stories that she puts out is that she walked into a club, he saw her, he was pissed at her, and he jumped off stage and chased her several blocks as she tells it 20 blocks until they ended up in Chinatown and she tripped and fell down into the street and then he came up to her and like loomed over her and was like all right you want to get some food (laughs) so uh you know Mingus was nuts I mean he was a musical genius you know which everyone agrees on but he um was definitely an intense dude According to Kyle, he was part of the sort of West Coast artists and he actually was in a high school band with Chico Hamilton, who we'll talk about later on for Repulsion. And apparently as a teenager, he would drive around on a motorcycle and lasso people's lawn jockeys, which were uh, like typically in blackface. And then he would pull them off the lawns and and like take the broken remains and pile them up in his garage where he'd have band practice. <laughs> So uh you know hmm. this is this is who Mingus was, but you wouldn't know it watching this movie in this movie, he's like, "Hey, there, Charles Mingus. He's like, "Hey, guy, you know, like he's just sitting there chilling. yeah,
2: he's he's a cuddly teddy bear in this movie. Yeah,
0: completely. So I guess he did some good acting
2: <laughs> uh well, this movie, anyway, is uh an updating of Othello set in the hipster London jazz scene, the uh sort of king of jazz." Uh, at this period in time is uh, Aurelius Rex is kind of the Othello figure he's a pianist black pianist and his wife Delia who's a jazz singer who's retired since they got married a year ago um, is white so which really there very little is made of that in this film I think perhaps because it's british it it's you know somewhat less of an issue but it also seems like it's very it very consciously plays up in in you know in the way that it does in othello the the fact that some of rex's insecurity about his relationship with delia is because there it's an interracial relationship and it feels less secure to him for that reason
0: i think that comes across pretty clearly
2: Yeah, it does, but it's also like...
0: They never explicitly say it.
2: Nothing's racist is explicitly said in this film. Like, it's never... No one seems to be judging them as a couple at all because, you know, one is black and one is white, which seemed interesting in in 1962. But anyway, it's their one-year anniversary, and Richard Attenborough is some rich London dude who is throwing a party in his jazz studio... It uh, has a nice uh, view of the London Bridge from his roof. And he's invited a whole bunch of jazz people to come play for this one-year anniversary party. And Johnny Cousin, played by Patrick McGowan,
0: uh, yeah. who,
2: who you know as, as The Prisoner in the TV show The Prisoner.
0: Love that show.
2: Is the Iago figure. And he's a drummer who's trying to kickstart his career by forming a group with Delia, who is this you know very famous singer. Um, so he's manipulating everybody to try and like get Rex and Delia to break up, so she'll start a band with him and
0: and he only has backing if she joins the band. So everything really is on this. It's not just that like he feels like it. It's like he he was told that he will be funded to start his own band as long as Delia is in it. And then Rex does not want her now that she's married, she's not allowed to sing anymore, which just she says she's fine with because she's would choose marriage over a career but Johnny cousin won't would rather break up their marriage and profit <laughs>
2: <laughs> so there's all of the anxiety in this movie really is him like he, he sweats through this whole thing and he's really just he, he doesn't seem as half as clever as uh, as Iago in the original play he's really just sort of desperately like grasping at straws trying to like cause chaos and make everything explode None of the things he does, like you know, like taping a, a conversation between uh, between Delia and and, uh, and Cass, her her sort of longtime friend, who's the who's the like the Cassio character in the play, um, and like, reslicing the the tape so that it sounds like they're you know making love to each other, like none of it really makes sense or could po- ever possibly have the outcome that he's looking for. It looks like he's just so like he just sort of hates everybody and their success and that he's not having any success. He just wants to destroy everybody's lives and, uh, and he kind of succeeds as far as that goes.
0: I like this movie. I, I, (laughs) there's something that's kind of, uh, I don't know. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what I really like about this movie is how unspoken the racial tension is. And it feels also amplified by the fact that these are a lot of Americans in England, And, you know, the fact that Johnny feels that just because this is an interracial relationship that he feels entitled to mess with it. And the fact that just the smallest hint of doubt that he's planted, though, granted, he gets pretty wild with it. I mean, him recording somebody in the room, I think, is the best. And then he sits there and, like, hand edits the tape, (laughs) (laughs) which is, uh, like, hilarious to watch because it's just so much. It's like, how long did this really take him? I mean, realistically, but he's just doing this on the fly, you know, apparently. But, you know, it's just these hints of doubt are enough to sort of set off Rex on believing it because of the fact that it is hard to be in an interracial relationship in in the early 60s But the other weird aspect about that is the sort of power play of of music, the fact that everyone's a jazz musician and the fact that jazz is not only an American art form, but a black American art form. And so where Johnny, as a white musician, a British white musician, maybe can't succeed.
2: Well, no, actually, he's supposed to be American. Oh, really? He's just got a terrible accent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's from Maryland or, or uh, you know.
0: Well, either way, he's still white. And, and you know, the thing is that where it's interesting to sort of see him trying to, to duke out this, his white privilege in, in a space that is inherently black. It's a really interesting take on the source material, in my opinion, to put it in a jazz club and to, to make everyone jazz musicians. It really sort of it heightens that racial tension in, in a really interesting and in, in modern way.
2: See, I love the setting, and I the performances are great, but I didn't think it worked as a story. Like it seemed like it was really trying way too hard to make it mirror the Othello story. And you just, I mean, maybe it's also the way that I was watching it, but I just kept waiting. Oh, this is like this in the play. This is like that, and it it just seemed pretty forced. It, it seemed like there were a lot of you know really on the nose conversations just to get at you know some particular idea that's in Othello, and. I didn't think it worked very well dramatically. I was kind of actually bored. There's nothing much keeping me interested in what was happening. I mean, I guess if you know Othello at all, you know what's going to happen in the movie. It was a good idea, but it didn't convincingly transplant the play into early 60s London jazz scene, I didn't think.
0: Patrick McGuin does such a good job in this movie. He's so convincingly evil.
2: And he's doing he's doing his own drumming too, and he he looks really good doing it. He clearly he
0: studied for months and months and months just so that he could look good drumming it.
2: He should have worked that hard on his accent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think definitely the one of the other selling points besides seeing real jazz musicians on film here is the music in general is kind of awesome in this movie, and mostly in the way that the tension ramps up in the music, and as the tension ramps up in the story. I mean, that's the one thing that I remembered about this film and coming back in and I was like, Oh, like, only like, I don't know. It just, I thought I had this like memory of it being so much of a buildup in a way almost closer to like whiplash or something, you know, like I had this like memory of it being just like really intense. Like it, it ramps up. It like starts off as like a fun night out. And then it ramps up to like this sort of fever pitch, which, it, it, it does sort of musically, actually. I mean, you definitely get way more drums and cymbals happening <laughs> <laughs> after about 40 minutes in. Suddenly all the music is like way more loud and frenetic.
2: Well, the, and the style of the music totally changes when Johnny is playing. Like he's drumming really intensely. Like those scenes are really like effective and compelling because he's sweating and putting everything into this drumming. But it also uses like this noirish... Score, which is unlike kind of jazz that you hear in the rest of the movie, Philip Green did the actual score, so I think that his contributions are are these like noirish, really dramatic, melodic thing. You know, they're composed jazz where there's no sense of improvisation at all. Whereas the rest of the jazz in the movie either contains some improv or or is actual improv. I think the the Brubeck Mingus scene in there is just pure improv you know, you get the two of them together and see what kind of music they make. So it's fun to watch that, but I thought it was kind of off-putting actually that the music that Johnny plays is so much different than what everybody else is playing.
0: To me that was sort of what was abstract and interesting about this movie cuz otherwise it is it is a very straightforward drama, you know, if if not a little bit stagey and a little bit clunky and you would say extremely clunky, but I don't know, I thought it was fine but the music and the sort of the the whiplash of the the different types of styles and the intensity in the music i think is what makes this kind of a really standout film and it was it's what makes it really fun to watch i don't know it, it ends up being about as hip as you want it to be and it also kind of incorporates the volatile temperament of the artists and i like that that was fun <laughs> someone gets thrown off a balcony bart <laughs>
2: and Cassio, or Cass gets to tell uh, an A and R guy what he really thinks of him. That he doesn't know shit about jazz. He just wants to figure out what'll sell records, and uh, and that's that's fun too. Things that seem very specific to the scene at the time and specific to the music world. I really enjoyed. It's when it sort of grafts it onto a fellow that it, it felt awfully clunky to me. And it's also interesting to watch this back to back with the connection because they're both set in one room for the whole movie, basically. I mean, I guess in in, uh, All Night Long, you go up on the roof, and maybe you get a a street shot or two. But, uh, yeah, basically, just, you know, you get the jazz performers in the film playing numbers, and, you know, it's very claustrophobic, you know, having just all these people in this one location for the whole movie. And as far as subject matter goes and style the, the two movies couldn't be more different but there are enough similarities that I'd like being able to compare and contrast the two
0: now that I think about it I think the first four of these movies are basically set in one room
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you get you get <laughs> kind of they are. really are yeah you know, but
0: but that's what's fun about these two and maybe that's part of why they kind of run together in my head as being like a certain type of film because there's there's something that moves about all of these movies. They never feel static. Even The Connection, which is which is a relatively static film, there's always something weird happening in the corner of your eye in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And all night long, it sort of it keeps it moving through the tempo.
2: Yeah. Well, the next film, uh, which is Pressure Point from 1962... Mm-hmm. Directed by Hubert Kornfeld, and I don't know him at all, but it's produced by Stanley Kramer, and it really feels like a you know, sort of well-meaning social problem movie that Stanley Kramer would be responsible for. It is, I mean, it's mostly set in a prison psychiatrist's office, so it does have that one-room thing. But but we do get to you know go outside occasionally and see Bobby Darren in flashbacks to see what made him the psychotic that he is.
0: Yeah, this is Sidney Poitier as a si- prison psychiatrist, as you said. He's an African American prison psychiatrist, obviously, which is a problem for Bobby Darren, who is his white nationalist patient. And most of this film is sort of about this story that Sidney Poitier is telling in flashback about the the most difficult patient that he ever had, and Bobby Darren's having panic attacks and it's up to Sidney Poitier to figure out why that is. And of course, Bobby Darren doesn't want to talk to him for multiple reasons. One, because he is a man in 1962 and he doesn't want to do none of that sissy shit where he talks about his feelings. <laughs> and uh, number one as well, it's not even number two because this is maybe even a bigger issue is the fact that he doesn't want to talk to a black guy because he doesn't think of him as an equal. It is Definitely a timely movie to be watching in 2021.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Almost in a way that like, you know, I, I we've mentioned before on this show about how the second that you think something is unique, that you think your own generation's unique, and then you go back and you look at anything, anything from any previous generation, quite frankly, and you're like, oh, there it is. There's the exact same situation. And uh, that's what this is, because this this movie is meant to take place in like 1939 or something. And, you know, Bobby Darren's talking about the time where uh, he went to Madison Square Garden and showed his support for Hitler, who was, of course, rising to power, which is a real thing that happened. And there was definitely a bunch of Nazi rallies in New York and New Jersey that at least I know about that happened just before World War II or right when World War II happened. And so it's really interesting because this movie does a lot of explaining on his philosophy and why he thinks that basically fascism is not only an easy sell, but the right decision for America. And of course, you have Sidney Poitier sitting there like just biting his tongue. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this was really, it was really interesting to watch, even separate from the music and separate from my theme here, like We'll get into it, but I don't want to totally spoil this movie because I think you should absolutely seek it out and watch it.
2: Just in subtle ways, it's eerily similar to the last four years with Trump as president. Bobby Darren doesn't even really necessarily believe any of this white supremacist crap that he's spouting. You know, he believes it as much as he believes anything else, which is basically he doesn't believe anything. But he knows that this is a way to get respect and power and to make people listen to him and make people do what he wants them to do is to like feed their their hate create this environment of hate so that he can do whatever he wants so he can like you know just rise up and up and up and uh, to see <laughs> I don't I, I mean I, I don't want to be Trump bashing right now
0: <laughs> it definitely feels like he he would have loved 4chan <laughs> you can put it that way <laughs> he's very like alt-right bro but why this is included in our theme here? Well, the music is composed by Ernest Gold, who is, according to Kyle, is a—he's a composer type,
2: <laughs> not specifically jazz. I—I I, I mean, he's more of just a Hollywood composer of, of soundtracks. You know, he's competent in just about every style. It seems because there's a real variety of styles in this movie
0: yeah and i mean this movie is not overtly jazzy though it of course is it has very abstract music and it has that more of that kind of third stream style of music so coming off of a movie with like mingus (laughs) it's not like that type of jazz but it definitely has i mean it has an amazing theme song (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that like turns into this, it like whips up the, the music into this fever pitch of wailing. Like it's this really great, great theme song.
2: Well, again, it's this. It's using the this noir jazz sound, which is not this bop, semi-improvised sound that the real jazz nuts were, were into at the time. This, it, it's got a real Hollywood jazz sound to it, uh, uh, you know, for a lot of it, like including the opening theme. But the reason in my memory this stuck out as a jazz movie is because there's one scene in particular, really like really intense scene where Bobby Darren is talking about this time when he's in a bar and he gets the whole bar to you know start playing tic-tac-toe on every surface in the bar, you know, with paint and, you know, scratching it into the counter with a knife and, uh, you know, painting the tic-tac-toe on the wife of the bar owner who's just too frightened to do anything about all this trouble that Bobby Darren has caused and it's got an amazing jazz score in that scene that's really effective that scene was lodged in my head when i thought oh we that we, we have to do this movie for jazz anxiety really that's the only scene in the movie that has that same sort of that jazz anxiety feeling that i thought you were going for with, with this episode
0: really because I thought that the scene where, I mean, whenever he has a panic attack, he has this vision of somebody slipping down a drain and you get this really bizarre, like, it looks like they built this giant drain for an actor to be in. So they look like they're the size of an ant. And so he has this vision of himself slipping down into the drain or a vision of his father slipping down into the drain, which is totally abstract and, and really strange. And the music is always this sort of atonal kind of, you know, wildness happening as he's having these panic attacks. And that scene with the bar is definitely out there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, it definitely, to me, reflects this type of music and this type of not only the anxiety, but also the sound. I mean, like, it's the, this is the sound of improvisation. It's like the sound of taking an idea and running wild with it. So, you know, that's very clearly on display with the bar scene. But I also find all of the scenes where he thinks about his childhood, when he finally does open up to Sidney Poitier and and starts talking, the movie kind of dissolves almost into like a play. The lights, everything goes black and you only see the two characters on maybe on the couch or at his, you know, Sidney Poitier at his desk. Then the lights come back up and you're in a butcher or you're in a house or you're somewhere else, like suddenly the characters are sort of walking through his own memories and looking while you still have Poitiers sort of grounding the fact that this is a flashback. So it's very much like a stage play, but it does it in such a great way that it just comes across as visually abstract and really interesting. It doesn't feel (laughs) stagey. It's just very clearly like set design. Mm-hmm. it's sort of heavy on the art in that way. So I think this movie to me totally fits into this genre because of the way that it's shot and the definitely those points of very artistic depictions of anxiety that try to get to the, the heart of the feeling more so than it has to give you something realistic to look at, which to me is a very sort of musical understanding of <laughs> life. <laughs>
2: Those flashback scenes usually have this that sort of dissonant, atonal, sometimes like electronic, weird, you know, almost not theremin, but just, you know, electronically produced sounds. And it's not following any kind of traditional melodic structure. So it's not what you think of when you think jazz. No one would hear that and think, oh, that's that's some nice jazz that I want to play while I'm eating dinner. But it does have this (laughs) sort of this music can go anywhere sort of feeling about it. It's sort of lacking in structure in a way.
0: Well, the movie can go anywhere. I mean, like, there's a line where Bobby Darren basically says that he's coming up with his own truth. I mean, he says that Americanism is a hypnosis. (laughs) I mean, he's advocating for overthrowing the government as he's sitting here going on about, like, how the country wasn't created equal. And, you know, he's, like, spinning his own... Crazy truth while he's trying to sort of lie to himself and avoid the reality of his own childhood, you know, like and you get that in the image, you get that in the camera sort of spinning on the ceiling, or you get that in this flashback where he see his father comes in drunk with another woman and throws the other woman in his marital bed with the wife still in the bed <laughs> and Bobby Darren, as a child, is watching this, and you know the father is screaming and he's kissing the girlfriend in front of the wife and Bobby Darren looks at this and he hates his mother for it because he measures himself by this sort of brutish masculinity. and anything that isn't masculine is weak. And so he thinks his mother is weak for putting up with this, you know and he, and he sort of everything is distorted through this sort of toxic masculine lens. And, and then so he has this other dream, like this this bleeds into this other dream, this daydream of his, where he has like a bunch of slaves and all these other all the white kids are kneeling at his feet and and he has you know he's being carried on like a palanquin and, and it has a an elephant squish his mother's head <laughs> it's like this just totally out there like bizarre crazy situation but like you do kind of really get to the heart of who Bobby Darren's character is which I mean that's probably the most simplistic part of this is that it all kind of comes back to like He had a crappy childhood, you know, like he has mommy and daddy issues. His father beat him. And that's why he's just like a total psycho. And you know, that doesn't,
2: you love that Freudian stuff.
0: I do love it. But I, but it's like, realistically, this is not, it's not so clear cut. I mean, it's not that it can't happen, but like, there's gotta be more at play. Not everyone who, has a shitty childhood grows up to be a Nazi <laughs> but- yeah
2: it, especially how he becomes a Jew hater is the most ridiculous like he has this experience with you know this rich Jewish girl like sees him s- selling vegetables and, and they have sort of a thing but uh, but he's not good enough for her father so she, he's the father says that she can't see him anymore and and presto he hates Jews now and then that becomes the focus of his Life, This, uh, you know, this anti-Semitic white supremacist malarkey that he's spouting, it simplifies these issues way too much to be terribly convincing, but it's still compelling nonetheless, just because it's sort of, you know, giving some hints at what might be behind a you know, psychotic personality like this
0: it definitely does a better job of breaking down american nazism psychology than it does about like the individual but like there is a really interesting point of it it sort of makes about how it's just like you you slide into this because it's easy and maybe even f- it's a little fun you know it's like this community building and and where you were alone and and had no one here's like a bunch of brutes that like also enjoy beating up people and boy welcome to <laughs> welcome to the club you know it's you know and it's, it's it's very clearly about power and i think that stuff is really fun but otherwise yeah. the the character himself is it's a little it's a little flat but i it's also for 62 i don't know i was very i was pretty impressed with it
2: i mean maybe the character's the reason for his issues is a little simplistic but bobby Darren does a fantastic job he's really convincing as a white supremacist nut for a pop singer he's really got some acting chops
0: oh he's great in this (laughs) he's like a total slime ball
2: yeah not afraid to spoil his pretty boy image for sure i mean i guess he's not the pretty boy of some of the other pop singers of that era but he gets pretty ugly in this movie and he does a good job with it
0: he's at his best when he's explaining why nazism is so great for him (laughs) Yeah, because he has this like smile on his face when he's saying it and he really breaks it down to like your friends don't have jobs. And why is that? You tell him why that is. It's because of, you know, X, Y, Z. It's because of these people. And then, you know, you come over and you befriend these people and you you love their children and, you know, then you give them power and community and then the power creates fear which creates hate and then you know fighting back creates interest it's like this he has this like formula written down that he can express so clearly and yet when it comes to his own childhood it has a total like mental block on why it is that this stuff actually even appeals to him and so that's fun I mean like I don't know I, I enjoy the sort of psychological breakdown aspect of this and of course then uh, Sydney Poitier is sitting there Long suffering through all of this because he just wants to slap the guy in the face, mm-hmm. and uh, he has to, of course, keep his cool if not help him as a doctor. And then I think one of the really great parts of this movie is at the end where Bobby Darren again uses lies and distortion of the truth to get the other white doctors in the prison on his side and get him, you know, released from prison where. Sidney Poitier says well we fixed his issues but I don't think you should let him out because this guy is a threat to America so I mean that's really you know of course then you have another timely conversation here about white versus black and who gets listened to and at the end of the day even if people are on equal standing professionally who gets chosen there's a sort of unconscious but very overt bias against Sidney Poitier and so like that even on top of the really obvious Nazi. You get this really nice, subtle critique on white supremacy as it exists throughout all white people, <laughs> uh, which is yeah. which is a lot more subtle and, and a lot more interesting.
2: Yeah, how it condemns the liberal white doctors is is really interesting too. This is a good movie. I would have enjoyed it watching it any time, but just watching it when we watched it, it was especially powerful just because so many of these things are such hot topics right now and how you know so little has changed in in the years between when this movie was made and today that it's a definite must watch
0: yeah i mean if anything like it'll both make you feel terrible but it'll also make you feel like well we've been here before
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: we got out of it once sort of, in America. (laughs) Not so much in Germany, obviously. Anyhow, well, the next movie is uh, Repulsion, 1965. which is directed by Roman Polanski, who we've talked about previously. I don't think we have to get into Roman Polanski and our opinions on him.
2: No, this is our third Polanski movie, right? After Rosemary's Baby and... Oh, yeah. And uh, Knife in the Water. This was actually his second feature film after Knife in the Water. He, he got out of Poland because he couldn't make the movies he wanted to make and settled in the UK, And and Repulsion was the first result.
0: I almost didn't want to talk about Repulsion in this episode because I love Repulsion. It's not just Polanski's best, but it's like one of the best movies. And it's one of the best movies because of the fact that it gets the female condition so right, (laughs) which I've actually written about on Back Row if you want to read more on that. And it's also the fact that Catherine Deneuve and Roman Polanski both are total creeps when it comes to being empathetic to women (laughs) so we don't have to get into that right now (laughs) but i think this movie is amazing the first time i watched this movie was over a decade ago and i think i don't remember if it was the imdb description of this which i think it was or if it was the like cable on demand description of this but the description of this movie was like a young woman with rape fantasies. And I remember watching this movie being like absolutely horrified and then coming back and being like, who the hell thought that there was any aspect of this movie that was like a fantasy? Like, why would you ever use that
2: word? (laughs) I think they were confusing repulsion with Belle de Jour.
0: I mean, I don't even know. It was like the the most wrong. So like, I learned a lesson that day, which was do not believe descriptions, (laughs) but also like that anyone can can watch this movie this movie i've seen this multiple times now and it creeps me out every single time it makes me like look over my shoulder <laughs> every single time
2: <laughs> i knew you had reasons that you didn't want to deal with this movie for this episode but i didn't realize it was because you loved it that much i really like this movie i think it's an incredible piece of psychological horror it's not what you traditionally think of as a horror film, but it, it definitely like its whole purpose is to creep you out and to terrify you. I mean, there are some jump scares in there for sure. Like when she's the first time we see her fantasy rapist, um, when she's looking in the mirror and he's, you know, the, the camera angle changes a little and he's behind her in, in the mirror
0: well, we should tell... Let me let me say the plot of this movie really quickly.
2: Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't everybody know what Repulsion is? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I would hope, but if there's someone out there who thinks that this is about rape fantasies, then let me set the record straight and say that Repulsion is a movie about Catherine Deneuve as Carol, and she is sort of a meek and timid woman who doesn't seem to like to interact with anybody. She goes to her job at a beauty salon, and, you know, when she's out on the street, she has to deal with the, like, leering men and, and creepy comments. She has this guy, mm-hmm. Colin, is this sort of young and, uh, you know, nondescript handsome guy who follows her around and is always asking her out. And she doesn't, it's 1965. She doesn't say, screw you, get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. She's sort of polite to him, and she sort of humors him, but but not, like, in a way that anyone who has any sort of sense of social decency would realize that this woman does not want to speak to you and is a little bit terrified of you and but of course as a man in 1965 the only thing that colin can think of is well she's just being a nice queen because she wants she's playing hard to get you know and so
2: doesn't she see i'm a nice guy she thinks i'm not a nice guy let me prove to her that i'm a nice guy by busting her door down just so I can talk to her.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he follows her home. He's constantly being like, well, let's like, let's have a date. And she's like, Oh, like politely, like I'm busy tonight. And he's like, what about tomorrow? Oh, I'm uh, busy <laughs> washing my hair tomorrow <laughs> too. Oh, how weird. So she lives with her sister and her sister is much more embracing being a 1960s woman. She has a boyfriend that, that stays around and they have very loud sex all the time. And, the plot kicks in when the sister goes off to have a weekend vacation with her boyfriend, who Carol doesn't like, by the way. She thinks he's a creep, too. She just doesn't like him being in her space.
2: Well, and he's married. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, that that's...
2: <laughs> Among other reasons that, that Carol doesn't like him, it's because he's a married man who's spending all his time at their apartment, which I think any reasonable person might be a little irritated by that especially when she, when you're getting calls from the wife saying where where's michael where's where's my husband
0: yeah and so you know they when they leave the apartment carol starts to have these panic attacks and she starts to spiral into like a nervous breakdown basically that is based on her anxiety about men and her anxiety about sex and her anxiety about her role in a society where her whole point of living is to be a sex machine for men. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's so much in this movie that's really worthwhile getting into as far as that goes, like as far as being a woman in sixties society, you know, there's just like, I, I like, I can't even, I don't even know where to start with that stuff because it's just, there's so much and it's so interesting, but the reason why we're talking about this here is because it's totally a jazz anxiety movie. <laughs> so let's talk about the music a little bit because the music in this is great, really memorable. And also it gets weirder and more abstract as the movie goes on and it really heightens everything. It's almost like a sound effect, <laughs> you know, like the it, it ups the horror in this movie by 10
2: What I realized watching it this time is that the soundtrack doesn't really have that much music. But when music comes in, it's really effective for that reason. Like most of the movie is just silence or sound effects. You know, you'll get like, you know, bells ringing and or, you know, clocks ticking and and sort of just sound effects on the soundtrack those few moments when the music kicks in like it like at first we just get it like when she's walking down the streets of of london we get this you know nice little calm jazzy flute (laughs) jazz flute yeah it starts Um, off
0: like flute and guitar really calm nice trendy fun and by the end of the film it's like a paper kazoo and cymbals (laughs) <laughs> it's just like as you said the the music in this is so impactful because of when you don't hear it. Like when Carol has her first nightmare of being raped, which she can't tell it's a sort of waking nightmare. She can't tell if this is really happening or not. There's no music. You don't hear anything except for the ticking of the clock. And it's terrifying. It's just, it's, you know, she's sitting there with these silent screams as she's being assaulted. And the camera is focused only on her face. You don't see anything else. There's no, there's really no nudity in this. There's one scene where she's naked, but you don't see anything. And I think this movie is all the better for that. It's all the more effective because it isn't being told through the male gaze, which would have been just such an undercut for the whole point of this movie which again like you know like Rowan Polanski's come out and said oh it's about like a crazy woman and Catherine Deneuve has come out and said roughly the same and it's like you guys didn't even watch your own film (laughs) (laughs) it's absolutely doing much more I you know if anything maybe I think you could argue that the horror in this movie is being a woman and, and this is Polanski kind of apparently subconsciously realizing that but he makes a lot of conscious choices that backs that up
2: Rosemary's Baby, too. Both movies, you can say, that's the subject matter. It's the the horror of being a woman. But I guess he didn't intend it that way. It was just the accidental result.
0: But, uh, you know, so the music in this movie, uh, Kyle, uh, again, who is the ghost of this episode, he um, actually worked with Chico Hamilton, who is the composer. So I'm going to play a clip here for you guys of me talking to Kyle and what he had to say about the soundtrack and, and Chico Hamilton.
1: Chico was always a unique player from the West Coast, which now people call the left coast, the fresh coast. And he's part, part of that tradition, early part of that tradition. He always called his music contemporary, not modern, not this, is contemporary. And he would use strings and stuff and he would have odd uh, combinations, no piano. Many, most of his records have no piano in them. Uh, which is something he picked up from Chet Baker and Jerry Mulligan. They certainly are in a third stream kind of sound, which is a subject that keeps coming up in this, this conversation about uh, you know, s- soundtracks. And he's known for always bringing on young talent like Fred Katz, Buddy Collette, Eric Dolphy. And then the big, the big group, the one that really put him on the map was when he hired Charles Lloyd and Gabor Zabo, the guitar player and saxophonist respectively. And uh, both those players had this, I don't want to keep using the word ethereal, but Charles Lloyd really almost kind of writes like nature calls. He has just this beautiful tone and sound. And, uh, and you couple that with this, the style of swing that Chico brings to the table. It, it, it sounds like music from the Middle East almost, but they're, they're, they're both from, you know, I think Lloyd's from Tennessee, you know, obviously Hamilton's from the West Coast. Gabor Zaba's from Hungary. And he played straight melody. He was not blues-based. And one, I think it made him hard, hard to hire at, at, at first. And then, of course, Chica was like, oh, this, is, this sounds great. And, you know, Gabor's had a massive influence on 60s rock guitar and up to today. I mean, guys like Carlos Santana and guys like Jeff Beck, Peter Green, these are guys like, whoa, this guy, he's not playing anything blues-based or classical. He's, he's just playing it from his head. And he's playing from a gypsy tr- tradition. Of melodic guitar players you know like Django Reinhardt those three on record made some incredible records that were hard to describe dervish like you know very soundtracking and movies you know El Chico great great song El Toro Conquistadores you know these uh, forest flower I mean just beautiful work you know they certainly don't get played a lot on mainstream jazz radio but he's always in print which I thought was funny you never hear him on the radio but he's always in print more progressive stations play that stuff. And certainly after he died, he's gotten played more. But uh, Chico had us, like I said, so here's a, he's influential, and especially amongst like the young up and coming guitar players, especially in the UK. And then, of course, the way Chico dressed. He's known as the Mod Father, not Paul Weller. Paul Weller is the second Mod Father. Chico Hamilton is known as the Mod Father. Always wore cool clothes. He got on with England like a house on fire. i think a lot of artists who wanted to be around other great artists were attracted to him like guys like roman polanski or the stones there's a cinematic quality to chico's work and actually repulsion's the second film he scored the first one was uh, sweet smell of success and he's featured in that movie another i'm sure put his hit points sky high and people saw that and you know when i watched repulsion i actually was re-watching it i gotta say it really fits the mood it really puts it's like like I, I feel like any good soundtrack should always be a part of the character or a character in the film or part of moving the narrative along adding colors to it and I think that repulses it perfectly and it's in the soundtrack which you can buy has extra music that was never in the film which I think was interesting but uh, as far as historically speaking for the for the soundtrack it's right after Charles Lloyd left and Gabor Zobo took the lead as far as being the main kind of, I think, the ra- arranger and writer on it, which was a, right before he left Chico and went Solo. So, there's interesting transitional album. I'm probably a transitional film for Polanski as well.
0: So, that was Kyle Eagle talking about Chico Hamilton, who uh, he was lucky enough to know and have worked with. Kyle wrote the liner notes on Chico's Heritage album. And he was involved, uh, Kyle was involved in the production of that album cover and and release. I found it interesting that he, he called this both sort of transitional and hip. I think that kind of really does fit in, though, with Repulsion, which is, you know, it's definitely a completely vibrantly unique film, not only for Roman Polanski, but in general for 1960s film.
2: It's really not like anything else. I guess earlier in your conversation with Kyle, he was using the word ethereal a lot, but that is how I would describe the soundtrack to Repulsion. It really gives it this atmosphere. The soundtrack is what gives you the most indication that this is actually a horror movie. I mean, until, you know, later on in the film, actual horrific things start happening. People are murdered, and it gets nasty, and it it clearly becomes a horror film by the end. But early on, you've got lots of hints where this movie is headed because of this sort of spooky atmospheric music that, you know, seems like it should be a ghost story that you're watching, not the story of a schizophrenic going mad in her apartment. It is a case where the music is essential to getting across what this movie's trying to do. Of all of these films, the music has an important function in telling the story. You know, it does not in the same way in the other movies.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and and... The music to me is it the visuals and the music are are like one and the same in this movie. again, I mean, like this is what what you're watching on screen just so reflects that etherealness and that atonalness and that <laughs> otherworldliness that's happening. I mean, from the rotting rabbit on the plate to the those constant cracks in the wall that kind of happen and disappear. And scare the crap out of you every single time mm-hmm. they do happen uh the hands coming out of the wall i mean there's so much that's happening visually and even just the way that this is shot that it kind of goes from this spiraling camera a lot a lot of handheld that takes this sort of dutch angle but like it's like almost like falling over holding the camera it just sort of spins you know all of this stuff i think is again what better visual representation of the music and and the music I can't think of anything that would have sounded better than what we get in this movie they're so intrinsically tied you really can't have one without the other and I mean especially in horror sound design is always super important and arguably always almost makes a horror movie uh effective or not but this one is like it's a whole other level I think Especially the way that it dissolves, especially again from the way that you get, you know, that sort of woman walking down the street, sort of typical looking film, stylized but typical, to then it just dissolving until like you cannot tell what's actually happening. You don't know if there's a dead body in her tub or if there is someone who keeps coming in to rape her. You don't know if when she sees you know, shadows and, and hears steps if someone's actually in the apartment or not. You don't know that when the landlord comes in and, you know, starts to ask her for rent and then starts to sort of realizes she's alone and then starts to hit on her and then starts to assault her. And you don't really know, you know, I don't think we really see his body <laughs> the way that, you know, I don't think we see any bodies after a certain point in this film you know, so it's just there's so much that's that's sort of left open ended, and again, I just cannot think of a better soundtrack.
2: Yeah, here's another film where we've sort of gotten used to this idea of what we're seeing on the screen is a reflection of what's going on in the character's head, and, and the character not being able to get a grasp of reality, uh, you know, translating into us not being sure what's happening on screen, whether that's real or not, and the way that this movie just leaves it ambiguous is a you know in 1965 at least in you know mainstream cinema a film that you know was intended to grab a you know a a decent sized audience this is pretty fresh i mean other movies dealing with mental illness you know snake pit or, or you know three faces of eve you get moments from the the schizophrenic woman's perspective where It's really weird, but you're always really, you know, it's always very clear what's reality and what's not reality. Like the movies go to great pains to make sure you know the difference. But in Repulsion, I think it really started a trend, really kicked off this whole this horror aesthetic, the blending of fantasy and reality and not knowing which is which is, you know, becomes a big part of what horror is about after this. Totally. Totally. But now we move on to Mickey One. From the same year, 1965, Arthur Penn film starring Warren Beatty. This is actually before they made Bonnie and Clyde and they actually apparently did not get along at all during the filming of this movie, but uh, but they decided to change the world with their next film together. But this was Arthur Penn's first attempt at bringing that whole French New Wave aesthetic feeling to, to American cinema. I mean, this is really, like, even more so than Bonnie and Clyde. I think because Mickey One was not much of a success he knew he had to tone it down for Bonnie and Clyde but here's another movie where it's not really clear at all what's real and what's not real and it's a reflection of what's going on in Mickey's head he's a stand-up comic who all of a sudden finds out that the mob owns him and he doesn't know why I mean sort of Kafkaesque in that respect the mob is after him and he doesn't know why he thinks because the, he, you know, he was shooting craps drunk one night, and uh, he he owes somebody some money, and he can't remember. But, but really, it's just paranoia, and all of it could just be in his head. And the mob doesn't care one bit about this guy. But he runs off. He's in Detroit and runs off to Chicago to try and hide from who's ever after him.
0: Yeah, he burns his social security card, he reinvents himself.
2: And, yeah, you know, just taking a lot of crappy odd jobs. But he, you know, the showbiz keeps drawing him back but every time he sort of makes moves towards doing stand up again he he pulls back because he doesn't want to become famous enough that the mob will find him and yeah and it's got all sorts of surreal touches in it sometimes it's you know really slapsticky like silent comedy type gags and then other times it's intense like relationship drama and it's just really all over the place in terms of tone and style and i think it's great i really like this movie
0: Oh, now you like this movie? After how many episodes where you have given me shit for saying that I enjoy Mickey One? (laughs) And here comes Bart.
2: (laughs) Well, let's just say it really worked for me this time through. The problem is, is that Warren Beatty's character is so unlikable. You have no reason to care whether the mob is actually after him or not. You don't care if he gets his life back together. Like, he's just a creep. And I think... You know, this time through, knowing what I was in for with that, it helped me deal with what this movie is. That it's just a sort of existential questioning of, uh, you know, is there God? And why are bad things happening to me? Or why are good things happening to me? Everything is just so arbitrary. It's questioning the arbitrary nature of the universe and looking for some sort of reason for why good or bad things happen to us but it does it in a really playful way.
0: It uses Warren Beatty to his strengths as like a little bit slimy and totally insincere. (laughs) You know, it's like he's in all these seedy clubs and he just skates by on his good looks and he's not really that talented as a comedian in this movie. And I, I agree with you. That's totally why I like this movie. Like, I don't think this movie totally comes together. At all, but like that's part of what I also like about
2: it. <laughs> yeah, it's a real mishmash.
0: It feels like Arthur Penn's trying to do Czech New Wave actually, or, or more abstract Polish films that we've mentioned on Cinema 60 or even French New Wave films to a degree, but it's also trying so hard to be abstract that it actually becomes abstract <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in this like forced and pretentious way where, like, you can see everything coming from a mile away, and, like, you you see the seams of the filmmaking in this movie, and you can sort of see all the flaws happening in real time, and, like, you can point out exactly why this film doesn't really work, and then you're suddenly thrown back into this weird abstract. This stuff is so overt and on display that now it becomes this, like, almost abstract breakdown of a new wave film, and now it's really interesting again
2: <laughs> but that's also the kind of comedian that Warren Beatty is playing like he's about you know pulling the curtain down like showing you showing you what's the inner workings of show business this is this is how we put this stuff together his set is really this sort of questioning of his purpose and a lot of self-loathing you're seeing him put his set together based on what we've seen of his life in this movie and it reflects how the movie itself is put together where it's showing you okay well here I want to do this and I want to do this and I put want to put these things together and let's see what happens if I jam them together even though they don't really belong together it's meta in a way that I can't think of too many films earlier than this are, are meta sort of referring to their own existence well I mean Godard does it all the time but Definitely not too common in American film at this point.
0: Yeah. And the music in this, I think, is uh, it reflects that. It, it has that sort of awareness and it has that playfulness in it. The composer is uh, Eddie Sauter who Kyle was very excited to talk about. Uh he said that uh Souter was on a Stan Getz record called Focus. <laughs> and he says he's, you know, also just one of these these uh, you know, composer types who never he never made it big, but he has really interesting offerings that are actually he Kyle was a, is a big fan of his. He thinks he, he's kind of an underrated like a bit of a musician's musician type. Like anyone in the biz is going to know the guy's name. Uh, and probably will will say something really fantastic about him, but like your run-of-the-mill dude on the street probably doesn't, I didn't know who he was, <laughs> and that's me.
2: I didn't know who he was, but I know who Stan Getz is, and he's the soloist on a lot of the pieces that are used in this movie, and his performances stand out. Like I, I take note of the music when Getz is doing his thing, but I have to admit it kind of fades into the background a bit when there's no Getz.
0: Well what was kind of interesting was that Kyle was saying that he was part of this Souter Finnegan Orchestra. I think it's Ben Finnegan uh was I think trained up Nelson Riddle to to be the the man, the arranger he is today or was today. <laughs> um but apparently the Souter Finnegan Orchestra if like you, if you were a hipster in like the late 40s or the early 50s you would have that this would have been like your college rock. <laughs> and um there's like a lot of references to marijuana and sex and taboos and it's like known for being kind of quirky and interesting and then after that broke up he the eddie Souter turned to soundtracks but i think that a lot of that really comes through the the playfulness and, and the strangeness and the dream logic of this movie you know again i don't think i can't imagine another soundtrack for this movie I, anything that would have been straightforward would have undercut the entire not only like the vibe but like the entire message of this movie the scene i always think about and i think is going to be anyone who's seen this movie is probably the one that stands out the most is there's always this japanese artist Uh, well we don't know he's an artist at first he's this japanese guy that's always sort of always passing mickey in the background he's always With like a cart full of junk you know waving at him and and sort of yelling something at him it, it reminds me of like the end of la dolce vita like there's like you know like the little girl at the beach like there's always like someone like he's always there in the corner kind of like trying to say something to our main character who just like doesn't understand like and doesn't get what's being said or who this person <laughs> even is mm-hmm. and eventually he gets revealed as as being this like like i almost want to call him like a flexus artist but I don't know if I if Fluxus was a thing and you know <laughs> but um it, he sort of has this this performance art where he builds this machine and he says it's called yes very yoko ono <laughs> mm-hmm. um and it, it like has all these messages of saying yes in different languages and what is it something like the the greatest it's greatest freedom comes from its greatest threat and it sort of turns it on and it's almost like a Rube Goldberg machine where like one thing hits another thing and it makes all of these crazy sounds until the point that it gets like into this sort of feverish, I don't know, mode and, and then it just destroys itself like it bursts into flames <laughs> and it like foams over and everyone just kind of like everyone who's standing there watching who Mickey being in the crowd at this point with his like girlfriend of the minute, you know, everyone's just like, huh, it <laughs> walks away.
2: No, she's the real deal. She's she gets him to find himself again and commit himself to to living again. But uh but yeah, his I don't um, buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this entertainment machine that this clown has. Who is I don't know the actor's name, but he's in like he plays a clown in every Kurosawa movie.
0: Kamatari Fujiwara.
2: Yeah. He's the R two D two character in uh, in the hidden fortress, and he, he just you know always this this wacky kind of well meaning kind of kind of guy, and um, this machine that he turns on, it's sort of like this you know assembly line sort of thing, and it's it's actually you see moments that we've seen in Mickey's life earlier in the film, like the you know the cars are on the, this assembly line and they're being junked, they're you know turned into these cubes of metal. Just like when Mickey first comes into Chicago. And it's, you know, it's again, it's just the movie referring back to itself and ultimately, you know, destroying itself, being just this machine designed for self destruction. And that's sort of Mickey's act on stage. And it's also how this movie seems to be put together. It's like, you know, this movie only succeeds if it ultimately destroys itself. And Penn succeeds because nobody really likes this movie. It was a big failure. And most people watch it and they say, huh?
0: I think Pauline Cale really ripped this movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Like the best thing most people can say about it is, I liked what it was trying to do because it doesn't really succeed at all. But that's also part of why I really enjoy it.
0: The best scene in this movie and the thing that really, I think, made me even love this movie in, in a way is the scene towards the end where Mickey's up on that stage. He's convinced he's going to get shot on stage. You know, there's someone in a booth who's watching him and they tell him, you got to go out. It's an audition. You got to go out. They're in the booth already. You got to go. out. he's like, I don't want to go out there. If I go, to, the second I'm on that stage, that that's it. I'm going to be a, you know, sitting duck, but he, they push him out. He gets on stage and the lights just go out completely. And there's this moment where you're like, like what happened? Would something get shot? And then suddenly this spotlight turns on. And it's like, if HAL 9000 was a spotlight. <laughs> uh-huh. It's just the most menacing spotlight. Uh, and he's sitting there crouched down because he's just absolutely terrified. And it's just the best. I don't even know how long this scene goes on. Like a minute, like 30 seconds. It's just this great scene where he is afraid of standing up physically and also comedically <laughs> mm-hmm. and he's just like kind of talking to himself but into the microphone and he's like who's up there it's like am i am i coming true is it gonna be any weather like he's just like doesn't know what to say and like there's just like the the heat of this spotlight staring at him like you get this sort of shot of what he can see and it's just like the glaring spotlight in his eyes and, and everything else is black And it's so good in the way that it's framed. Like, I just love that you sort of only even see half of him. You see this, like, wide shot where he just looks like the tiniest little ant (laughs) in a ball of light. And then you get this close-up on his face where he can barely open his eyes because the light is so bright. It's just such a good scene. It's such a great scene.
2: Yeah, that scene on its own is really effective, like, you know, outside of the context of the... The whole movie it it would be effective just on its own, like because it gets very theological. Like the spotlight is sort of like the, like the eye of God and and uh, or, or or the hand of God and you know able to like decide the fate of Mickey. Will he live? Will he die? Will he be a success on stage? Will he be a failure? Even more memorable than the self destructing machine that the uh, the Japanese clown creates is this the spotlight scene is. Is great. It comes back. It sort of plays into the climactic moment where Mickey sort of accepts his fate, or accepts that he has no control over his fate, and uh, you know, sort of looks at the spotlight and accepts it.
0: But yeah, I don't. Yeah, the Mickey wants great.
2: <laughs> all of these movies, even if they're not great, they're must see movies. I know you love all of these movies, but I kind of feel the same way about most of them is that they're they're absolute must-see movies that don't necessarily work the way that they, well, repulsion accepted. That's a that's an all-time classic, but but they don't quite work the way that they're supposed to work, but they still do something that you've never seen before.
0: Do you feel that way about our last movie starring James Garner, your favorite actor?
2: <laughs> Very much. That's exactly how I feel about oh. the next movie, which I think is the the biggest failure of all these movies but also really kind of fascinatingly put together and interesting on most levels other than you know entertainment value
0: and that movie is mr budwing <laughs> 1966, directed by Delbert Mann. And uh, I actually watched this movie on Kyle's recommendation several years ago. So I'm just going to bring in Kyle's uh, little notes right now. Kyle adores this movie. Absolutely. He loves James Garner. He thinks that he is very manly. And we've had this conversation. And I'm like, I don't. <laughs> He's fine. James Garner is fine. Um, Kyle thinks this movie was an inspiration for Memento. How do you feel hmm. about that? I kind of, I like, I can kind of see it. That's,
2: yeah, it definitely deals with a wife related trauma that has created a, a memory lapse. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely didn't see it at the time, but, and I don't know that many people actually saw Mr. Budwing. So I don't know if uh, Christopher Nolan was inspired by it, but yeah, a lot of similarities.
0: The soundtrack is by Kenyon Hopkins, who. He was never a big name in movie scores or jazz. You know, he was never an Elmer Bernstein or a Henry Mancini or a Miles Davis (laughs) Uh, or a Coltrane, but in Kyle's opinion, had a great style uh, that just really works perfectly. He loves the theme that our main character, Mr. Budwing, whistles in the film score. He also loves the fact that the main character who sort of later realizes that he actually himself is a jazz musician, he mentions he's on Verve Records, and Kyle says the soundtrack is, in fact, on Verve Records.
2: <laughs> and he loved that. Well, he becomes an A&R guy for, for Verve Records, which is funny.
0: But, uh, you know, his his take on this was that this was like a pure 60s sound, the, the paranoid and the stress of the film reflected in the vocal passages. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess the only other things that Kenyon Hopkins did of note is uh he did he scored the Hustler, and he also uh, scored I guess the Brady Bunch. <laughs> but oh, um, well,
2: you know what I know I know his name, and I th- I thought it was just for the Hustler, but but maybe yeah maybe I did somewhere in the back of my mind. I think mind he did a handful
0: he, of like TV <laughs> jingles and things like that. But um, uh, the plot of this movie is that. James Garner is an amnesiac who does not remember who he is and all he has is like a piece of paper with a phone number. He wakes up in in the middle of Central Park fully clothed thankfully and notably, and I think what's really fantastic about this movie is the first two minutes of it, which is shot in Garner's point of view. You don't ever see our main character. Uh, it's really interestingly shot actually for 1966 but just in general it's like a great opening for a movie uh, you know you don't even know who who were to, i mean you know because you're <laughs> you're going to see a james garner movie but you don't know who the character is and you know you, there's this great it's two minutes solid of kind of a wandering and you know looking at his hands looking at his checking his pockets and and not knowing really like kind of familiar surroundings but unfamiliar and he ends up in a hotel he has to look in the mirror at the hotel just to see who he is to see his own face and so the rest of the movie kind of unravels as he slowly starts to re-remember who he is and why he's there. As you mentioned, it has to do with the fact that he he knows he has a wife, but he doesn't remember her name and he can't remember who she is. And he keeps seeing different women in the street who he's just convinced is his wife. And every time he, you know, and he's, he's James Garner, so like he approaches them with that those kind of puppy dog face and says like, you know, I don't know who I am or, or aren't you so-and-so. And he's not a creep enough that they, you know, tell him to, to beat it.
2: <laughs> well, is James is James Garner? He's so handsome that of course they want to give him the time of day.
0: Yeah, and a lot of them try to help him out in some way. And so he, when when this happens, and he kind of gets to know them or sleeps with them as it happens, he, um, you know, starts to imagine he gets these flashbacks of his past, but with that woman in the place of his wife.
2: But get this. His wife's name is Grace, and he keeps thinking each of these three women. Starting with Catherine Ross, who plays the young Grace, like and and you see in flashbacks, you know his courtship of her. You know she's 19 and he's 25, and then later on he meets, runs into Suzanne Plachette, and he thinks that she's Grace. So then you see the, the flashback of their life together, and you see them as a young married couple, and things starting to go wrong with their relationship. And then finally, we get a third woman played by Jean Simmons, who's this blonde socialite who then becomes the third grace. And I thought, hey, the three graces—I figured this all (laughs) out on my own. And plus, there's a—you know—you get the clue early on that Catherine Ross is studying Greek mythology. But um, but yeah, the three graces, which represent youth, mirth, and elegance, which you know. So how about that for some? metatextual references in, in this film that add up to not much no, yeah but it adds up to not much of anything other than somebody <laughs> like me thinking he's really clever for figuring out that oh it's the three graces
0: well like so that is genuinely very clever and i've never thought of that but i also like can't think of the level of intelligence of that realization mixed with the fact that this movie is called Mr. Budwing because a guy sees a Budweiser truck in a plane and then <laughs> makes up a name for himself.
2: So clunky. There's so many better ways they could have made that happen, but it's. so... <laughs>
0: but it's it's also perfect. Yeah. And actually, if if that if you don't want to watch the movie after hearing about that, then I don't I don't know what to tell you.
2: <laughs> I agree. The opening of this film is perfect. Like you're you're like. You're trying to figure out who this guy is, you know, at the same time that he is. Like we see these little clues, this this ring with some initials on the inside, and this, you know, this piece of paper. It says, I think it says Gloria. And it's somebody else's wife. Who knows how he got that number? But it, you know, played by Angela Lansbury. Um, oh, and two but, two mysterious yeah, pills. Old...
0: That's what he has in his pocket.
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> and you you're trying to put the clues together, like you know, the same way he is, and it's really compelling. And, you, you know, you're sucked in immediately into this world of this movie and you want to know what's going on. But then when he comes out of the hotel after he, like, sees his face for the first time and he sees a Budweiser truck and a plane flying <laughs> in the sky and says, okay, my name's Budwing. Like, then, like, it was all downhill no. after that for me. <laughs>
0: Come on. First you get Angela Lansbury, young Angela Lansbury, who's perfect. She's great. She's like just kind of, it's, I mean, it's weird just seeing her, but she is this great sort of, I don't like, I don't even know how to describe it. She's like, she's just very like New York.
2: Horny housewife.
0: She's But she's like down on her luck housewife with the drunk husband. And Wait, is that my husband probably gave you that? You know, it's like that kind of <laughs> like, she has her own sense of grace, but she's also this sort of like low class you know she's nice enough she helps him out you know she gives him some money she's like let me give you 20 bucks never call again <laughs> and then i love he goes to a diner and then then also ends up with this like jewish dude who's just like a nice jewish boy like you like what are you doing here and you're like really james garner <laughs> uh you know and he's sitting there talking about like you shouldn't eat so much citrus you know and it's like this is perfect just perfect little character beats you're not learning anything really. For what like, purpose,
2: though? Yeah, that's just so
0: much fun. I just you... love. I love <laughs> this character. Like you know these characters. Like you know this guy it was like, you know, oh, why are you doing it that 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 way? Well, what, can I just eat my breakfast? Who's stopping you? I'm not stopping you. You know, <laughs> it's just so fun.
2: I did laugh a lot at that scene, but it, once it was over, I, I just could not for the life of me figure out why there was this Jewish restaurant owner scene in this movie other than to give James Garner somebody to talk to for a little bit
0: I think he has all he has gets a flashback right doesn't he like say he's like 25 no, I don't or think something so. that's like completely unbelievable
2: <laughs> <laughs> no although all the men that he encounters like this movie is just a series of James Garner running into various people and interacting with them and the men always sort of are red herrings like he, he they give him the wrong idea of who he is so that's and, a point you know, he thinks that maybe he <laughs> well yeah but they um you know he thinks he's an escape mental patient at one point because of you know something in paper and somebody you know some dude thinks he is and and
0: uh oh yeah and like follows him
2: yeah but then every woman he meets becomes grace and he gets a flashback to the love that he feels for this woman every beautiful woman becomes grace and uh, and he actually does start to learn what his life is all about you know, Finally, Lieutenant Uhura at the end uh, gives him his breakthrough <laughs> and he figures it all out.
0: <laughs> we are, by the way, we are collecting all of the, of the original cast of Star Trek in Cinema 60 and um, I feel like there sh- we should uh, have like a social media contest where if somebody can name the original cast in movies we've covered, they like win a prize. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that prize is, but go ahead and tweet at us. We're gonna get you something, but we've only covered two of them.
2: Yeah, I, I guess I just don't have patience for James Garner. is is the problem. I want every woman to run from him. I don't want him to have, have anyone be romantically interested in him. James Garner is Brett Maverick. He's Jim Rockford. He's the guy who you know will not suffer fools gladly. He's got the upper hand on everybody because he knows better. And he's like, there's one scene in this movie where he's. Interacting with the youngest Grace's uncle, who is her, you know, adoptive father or whatever, and he's like not taking any crap from this guy, and just like saying, you yeah, know, I know what you're thinking. Well, who is this guy who's here to take my niece out? And it's like, yeah, there's there's Jim Rockford, there's the James Garner that I like. So he like he has a tiny bit of what's good about him in in this movie, but you know, the rest of the 60s, he's just this dull romantic lead. Forget about James Garner. Just give him. He, she's a TV star, not a movie star.
0: Well, I will admit that the thing that I didn't like about this movie is the fact that he just gets revealed. You know, it's like there's still this great mystery about who is this man. And, you know, and, he, and I think he's very sympathetic at the beginning, like uh, even even for James Garner. He's he's really like a puppy, like a lost puppy. You know, he's like a big, attractive man who wanders into your house and says, like, oh, I don't know where I am. And you're like, oh, that's sad. But um, then as as everything gets revealed, it turns out he's like a horrible prick. <laughs> <laughs> Not even just like, you know, in a way, like he's done terrible things. Like Not he, he was mean. really horrible to his wife and kind of creates the entire situation. I mean, she yeah. has issues, but like he creates this entire situation and then runs from it, you know? I mean, like, this is everything that gets revealed about him. You're like, wow, you're awful.
2: Well, the yeah, the really sketchy details as to why he actually, like, the amnesia actually kicks in. Like, that's a little weird, and, and there's no good explanation for it that makes him come off very well. But I think all the problems in their marriage are just sort of natural.
0: He tries to force her to get an abortion.
2: After she, like, pokes holes in the condom or whatever, like, she, she's like, well, maybe I wanted it to happen and you know and he's like all upset because he's trying like hell to be to make money as a composer but he just can't get it together and he's thinking about taking this job with verve records as an A&R guy like and just you know going for the money and for turning his back on being a creative person and grace is all like no you have to i want to be poor with you i want to i want you to follow your dreams and and plus we're gonna have this baby with no money and and when he's like, oh, well, we, we've got to get rid of it.
0: Which is not very, in 1960s, is not, you know, that's not so easy to do. And also, don't stick it in if you don't, uh
2: <laughs>
0: you don't want to get into this point. You know what I mean? Like, uh I don't know. I felt bad for her. I mean, clearly she's got some depressive issues, but I thought he was really nasty to her when he could have been a little more understanding. And, you know, okay, like, his career, whatever. We all have careers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I thought he was kind of a prick. But doesn't he, like, he gets, like, drunk and, like, calls her a slut and stuff? I mean, like, I get it. Yeah, okay. Like, don't knock up somebody that you aren't, like, fully in love with. And even then, it can still cause issues. But he's in love. Well, yeah, please. Anyway,
2: I don't, I the, the psychology of this movie is so <laughs> unrealistic and yeah, it's bizarre dopey. that that to to debate people's motivations is kind of beside the point.
0: As, a, as an anxiety movie, this is like pitch anxiety. Totally. Mm-hmm. I think, guys, all of these movies kind of ramp up in a way. I mean, Repulsion, I suppose, is the real climax of jazz anxiety films, but this is just James Garner doesn't know what the hell's happening. I mean, at one point, I love there's a scene where he he is having a flashback and he wakes up and he's in the uh, Washington Square Park and he's like screaming in the street and then a cop runs up to him and it's like oh wh- wh- what are you doing there kind of you know it's almost like uh, the British Bobby's like oh, what's all this then kind of mm-hmm. and then of course like all of the hippies converge and they're like why are you talking to him that way man and it turns to this anti-police protest <laughs> <laughs> but it's also just like it's just chaotic it's just like the same sort of you know he's just running he's always running around he doesn't know where he is he doesn't know who he is and he's just trying to figure things out and, and even when he does figure it out it only gets more stressful you know so the in the music in this is really great you know and besides like as, as kyle mentioned it's like you know humming this tune that that comes back you know there's this just a really great quality to all of it but um i would say that my favorite scenes in this number one when they're in times square and they have to print their own newspaper <laughs> <laughs> Which is like apparently like a tourist thing where you could just go to Times Square and get your own headline printed on a real newspaper Uh, and like, you know, you pay the guy 50 cents or whatever the hell it costs in 1966. Love that. That's so good. That's like one of those great little just details of like American history. (laughs) (laughs) that, like, no one really cares about, but, like, it's just really fun. Like, I love... I want to pay that guy to print me a newspaper with a headline. And then, of course, the the best scene, which is Nichelle Nichols, as you brought up, as a gambling queen.
2: Yeah, they go up to this craps game up in Harlem, and that's where Budwing recovers all his memories.
0: And wins so much money.
2: That he just (laughs) leaves behind. I like how... You know, our first two movies are are kind of connected by certain, uh, you know, plot points and, and settings. And so our last two movies, Craps is sort of a metaphor for life and how, you know, we're never going to know what what life has in store for us.
0: Well, and well, you know, the, and Gene Simmons, which, you know, she's
2: great. I, I love how she's just leading him around by the nose. She's perfect. She ties in
0: all of the stuff that you thought didn't make any sense because like there's also a great scene in the beginning of this movie where he gets into a cab and this cab driver is just talking about nothing (laughs) and (laughs) it, it made me a little nostalgic for when like you could get in a cab and go outside which of course can't happen right now but. I loved it. It was so good. He's like, yeah, this, this dame comes in and she's shaking her ass at me. You know, it's like this, like <laughs> James Garner doesn't care. He's like, just, just take me. Like I, you know, man, I told you to follow this other cab. Like let's, let's just go. And this cabbie keeps telling him about this, this one night, this lady, she tried to get me to take her to Oyster Bay or whatever the heck. And uh, eventually of course we meet her and It ends up being or, and, or not, you know, it couldn't be someone else, but it sort of seems like it's probably Gene Simmons who, kind of does the same thing. He meets her in a cab, and she's like, hey, you're handsome, like, get in the car. (laughs) You know, it's like this great New York moment, and I think that that's, you know, the fourth grace in this movie is New York City. I mean, like, and and you need all of this sort of character beats and this filling out all these little details because it's also, it's what makes New York great. It's what makes cities great, and it's just, you know, it's the texture of life, man. (laughs) it's one thing to be an amnesiac but then to come to in a city where like people are constantly just like hey buddy why are you like that (laughs) (laughs) like buddy oh yo what uh, come on what the hell you know like it, it just adds that much more anxiety and that much more thrill to the whole thing because there's just all of these people who just are like in his face constantly and just constantly like trying to, as he's trying to figure out like the basics of living and they're just like trying to grill him on like why he's eating a grapefruit like that. It's this great, like, you know, just extra little points of anxiety and like spikes being shoved into his back as he's trying to work on the Rubik's cube of his memory.
2: Yeah. This this is based on a novel, right? I feel like,
0: it is, yeah.
2: A lot of, a lot of this stuff was probably in the novel and makes more sense in that context. In, in this movie it just seems like a lot of random New York encounters, which I guess has its own charm.
0: I don't know. I think this whole movie is basically it's like it's a riff on memory and he's playing out all these alternative histories and these these other options and and what better to represent a plethora of roads to take than a well-populated city. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: You can take Fifth Avenue or you can go down the side streets. It's like that, you know, it's sort of everything is kind of mirrored in that way. Though I would say that perhaps that comes across better in writing than it does in a movie about a guy named after a bear truck plane.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Memento might be the only movie out there where you can say it has a comparable structure. This movie is unique and is worth a watch just for that reason. Yeah. So that was jazz anxiety. And now I think I have less idea of what you <laughs> meant by jazz anxiety than, than I did at the beginning of the episode where I thought I had it figured out. Like I was sort of picturing this this sort of noir thing where and you described this uh, several times throughout the episode where, you know, as things get more intense in these people's lives, the music gets more intense and. All Night Long is the only one where you get that sort of noirish, like intense jazz music where like things are really bad because this music is indicating to me things are really bad. I mean, mostly it's just a lot of, you know, it's, it's the improv style where it sort of gives you the sense of the, the sort of jumbled thoughts of the, of the characters. And so it doesn't feel so much like anxiety as like jazz confusion maybe. It's like improv jazz sort of sounds like, you know, it's always in search of a melody and, and not quite finding it. And that's part of its appeal. And these movies are, are sort of the same way where there's sort of these movies in search of a, of a plot and in search of a narrative to hold it all together and never quite finding it and are appealing for that reason. So that's my conclusion. That's that's what I've come to at the end of, of watching these six movies and how I define, I'm going to call it, our jazz confusion episode.
0: I don't think that's nearly as marketable as a jazz anxiety. <laughs> uh, you no, know, I mean, jazz has a structure, but it's not the structure that we're used to. You know, in, and improv has a structure. in jazz, in comparison to your general movie soundtrack especially, but in, in comparison to, you know, what makes jazz unique is the fact that it follows its own structure that it finds new ways to get somewhere <laughs> mm-hmm. musically and I think that there is definitely a type of film like you said I mean that that we, all of these movies are, are worth watching because they all do something that is unique and they all get to somewhere that maybe the plot is basic but the way that it gets there is different you know, I think that is sort of intrinsically tied into the music and at least, and again, it's the chicken or the egg because whether or not the music was written before the movie, which is mostly was not jazz certainly existed before. And so it's sort of, you know, art builds upon art and informs creativity and it begets creativity. And a lot of these jazz artists are hanging out with filmmakers and, and vice versa. And I don't know, there's just something that's sort of you know abstract emotional and free about these films and they're they're unique i think i think there's the distinction between anxiety and confusion is that confusion implies that this stuff is somehow directionless or or purposefully obtuse and i don't think that's necessarily the case because jazz can be abstract right? Which is different from being muddled or fuzzy. And anxiety is similarly something that comes to you both amorphously and yet pointedly. Like there might be a clear beginning to your anxiety, but the way in which it creeps up on you isn't always a straight line. It's something that that can come from any direction at any time, regardless of, of its roots and improvisational music in itself lends to that sort of tension. You know, it's like it's a tension that can be absolutely sublime when it's resolved, but it also challenges you to stick around and see it through to the end. You know, it's like that it questions whether you can even make it that far. <laughs> it's like it's this jocular antagonism there. And these films are all in on that mood. And so it's 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 a genre. Let it happen. <laughs> all
2: right. Jazz anxiety it is.
0: I just want to say thank you very much to Kyle Eagle of the major scale, which you can listen to on PFT media, which is a great program about jazz. Check it out.
2: I And I want to thank you, Jenna, for, for creating this new genre. Now we're going to go into all the, the history of film books. Cinema 60 will be credited forever as the uh, creators of the term jazz anxiety to describe these films that were made 60 years ago.
0: Yeah, baby. (laughs) I can't snap. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart Deloro and Jenna Ipkar. The theme song is Io la conosce bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out Cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.